What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. If you're a new listener, welcome to the Barbell Medicine Podcast series. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. Love to share this time with you. This week is episode 159. This is part one of Dr. Baraki and I's question and answer session from a recent two-day seminar at Untamed Strength in Sacramento, California. We talk about dietary variety, fairness in sports, change in beliefs, and much, much more. You're going to love it. I promise. First up, let's get to some announcements. If you're in the United States, it's the week of Thanksgiving, and that means turkey, time with loved ones, and of course, sales. Uh, Here at Barbell Medicine, we're actually doing a week of wellness that kicks off on Wednesday, November 24th. Many of our products and services will be on sale from Wednesday through Monday, November 29th. Stay tuned to our Instagram and Facebook pages for announcements. If you're signed up for our newsletter, we'll drop you these friendly little reminders in your inbox so you don't miss a sale. Uh, We've also got some great new products, including templates. We've got the Low Fatigue Strength Template coming out, Power Building 3, Hip Pain Rehab, Super Total, couple other cool ones that are going to drop as well, including some new apparel and potentially a book on programming that uh, may be available as well. That's a stretch goal for me to finish up in the next uh, 24 hours or so. Additionally, we have some more seminars coming up. In January, Dr. Baraki, myself, and the rest of the Barbell Medicine crew will be in Miami at the new Ghost Gym for a two-day seminar. That's going to be a fun one. Also, we'll be in Philadelphia in March, and the Pain and Rehab crew will have their own two-day seminar. They'll they'll be in Oregon in March. Uh, Spots are limited at these events, so get registered today by following the link in the description below. For the last part of this intro, I briefly wanted to talk about my most recent powerlifting meet that took place last weekend in Palmdale, California. If you have no desire to hear about this, which is understandable, you just fast forward for the next 10 minutes, delete it out of your brain, and get right to the Q&A. Um, okay, if you are interested in hearing about this, so I had signed up for this meet about three months ago, which gave me ample time to prepare. Recently, what I've been doing is if training had been going well, I would just kind of find a meet that was about a month away and kind of show up and compete. Uh, I got this wild hair to beat my all-time best total, which I actually set in knee wraps back in 2014. I totaled 815 kilos, which is 1795, uh, 1,795 pounds between the squat, bench, press, and deadlift. And uh, training had been going so well that I thought, hey, I think I could do this in knee sleeves, and that would be a pretty cool goal for me. So I signed up for this meet about three months ago. Um, if you're interested in seeing some, a more detailed look, to how my training was going. You can check out YouTube. Uh, I posted a bunch of training vlogs on there and yeah, training was going well. I had squatted uh, 290 kilos or 291 kilos, which is 640 in knee sleeves. That was an all-time PR. I had pulled uh, 738, which uh, tied my all-time best deadlift in the gym. I had been benching uh, well into the uh, you know 420 pound range, which was not a PR level, but it looked like if it all came together at the meet, I was going to be able to total at least 817 and a half kilos or eclipse the 1800 pound mark. So I was pretty excited about that. However, uh, as things tend to do when, when everything's going well, uh, kind of went sideways there about four weeks prior to the meet. Um, I got sick. I don't know what I had. I mean, I tested negative for COVID and every other, uh, test that I had you know, given uh, when I actually went to the doctor, but uh, I was feeling just extreme amounts of fatigue. I was dizzy when I stood up. 
Um, I couldn't sleep uh, for more than a few minutes at a time. And uh, I was straight up not having a good time. I did have some fevers at night uh, for a while there, about a month out. I actually, I missed a bunch of training sessions just because I was feeling so poorly. So at that point, I was thinking about, man, maybe I should try to find another meet. But uh, things started coming around. I felt a little bit better, well enough to train. I didn't feel like I was an infectious risk given that everything was negative. And uh, so I was able to start training again. Um, and things were going okay. I still didn't feel great you know, for the last two weeks or so of prep, but, uh, I I thought I felt well enough to go to the meet, put forth my best effort. And, uh, that if things went my way, I could probably hit that PR total. So in any case, I went to the meet, um, again, this was last week and I I still didn't feel great. And I I don't want to harp on that too much, use it as an excuse, but I mean, really, this is not the way you want to come into a meet. I just thought, you know, training had been going so well and I still felt strong the week of, uh, the actual meet, I squatted 280 kilos, uh, or sorry, 275 kilos. It was going to be like my opener attempt. So, you know, 606 and that moved really well. Um, I benched up to 192 and a half kilos, which is, uh, 422 pounds, I believe. And then I pulled 705, just what I thought was going to be an easy opener. So, and it all felt fine. So I was like, you know, here we go. Let's, let's do the thing. Um, so yeah, get to the meet, get changed into the, uh, Borat suit, you know, the singlet. And I thought, let's, let's do this thing. Warmups for squats. Uh, I had Claire in the warmup room. She was helping me out. Um, they felt fine. I, my last warmup, I think was five thirty-five or five forty-five, And, uh, yeah, it felt fine. I mean, again, I was still pretty dizzy, not like dangerously. So, and I was still tired, but again, not dangerously. So, and I just, uh, yeah, was ready to, ready to start the meet. So, um, First two attempts were fine. I didn't feel anything uh, as far as like, wow, my leg really hurts or any sort of warning sign about what was going to happen on the third attempt. Um, third attempt, walked out, squatted down to the bottom, and I hear pop, 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 and then an extreme pain running from my groin all the way down to my the inside of my knee, super unstable. Uh, luckily, I didn't dump the weight because dumping all that weight on my head would have been a uh, bad badness, but you know, there were seven or eight spotters on the platforms to help me get the bar back into the rack. Um, immediately I was able to walk just not quickly. Um, but yeah, I just severe pain in the inside of my leg. I had initially suspected that, you know, maybe I tore my adductor or hamstring or some sort of, in, you know, muscular injury like that. I didn't really know. Um, although it's about a two and a half hour, three hour drive from where the meet was back to San Diego. So, uh, at the meet, I was like, well, I didn't get the squat number. I needed to squat 290. Didn't get that. The best I had at that point was uh, 282 and a half. And uh, yeah, I could bench something without any leg drive or with minimal leg drive. Um, but I don't think I could beat, you know, hit my best. I could have probably benched in the, you know, low 180s maybe. So just maybe at 400 pounds, so which is not what I needed to hit my PR total. And then I didn't know what I could deadlift. I thought maybe with adrenaline and some weird stiff-legged kind of deadlift thing I could probably pull in the low 500s, but it, none of that was going to be enough to hit the PR total. So I just bagged the meat, left, drove home. Um, so yeah, it's about a three-hour drive. When I got home, the entire inside of my thigh was super bruised. Um, there was no like big pocket, like a hematoma, like a, a big blood, you know, kind of collection, but it was pretty, it was pretty bruised and tender and sore. And, um, honestly, the worst thing, the worst pain that I felt was when I got out of my truck 
when I got home, I'd just been sitting there for three hours and I, it just, that stationary kind of <laughs> time elapse was uh, not great for me. I almost fell, but uh, yeah, I was walking relatively normally, um, just standing up quickly, going quick, fast. Like I've had to walk fast. That wasn't great um, for the initially. And again, the, the bruise, it all led me to believe that I had adductor tear, but at the same time, I didn't really know because you know, I didn't have any imaging. I just thought, let's see how it goes over the next few days and, and go from there. So I was able to play golf the next day. Uh, the, it was pretty, it was pretty bad, uh, like walking, um, up some of the Hills, like that didn't feel, feel that great, but, um, actually swinging a golf club was fine. So that was encouraging. And even Dr. Derek miles, who I consulted with later on how to get started on my rehab process. And I'll share some of that with you guys in the upcoming content. Um, he was like, look, when you told me you played golf, I've got a lot less worried about how this was going to go for you. So, and then 48 hours out, I was able to squat. Uh, I think I squatted 65 pounds to pins and, uh, 72 hours out, I was able to deadlift 70 kilos. Um, and then by the end of the week I was able to, I belt squatted, I think, uh, 275 and conventional deadlifted 265 for 15s. Um, the, the thing that hurts the most is trying to go fast. So the velocity thing is, is, is tough. There's just shooting pain on the inside of my leg. Um, I get it. I feel like it's getting better day by day, but, uh, and I, I, I kind of was curious as to like, Hey, like what actually happened? Am I just going to call this an adductor tear or just, do I have thigh pain? So I ended up getting an ultrasound, um, on my leg. Uh, let, yeah, it was pretty easy to get in and, and see, a, see a doctor, fortunately. And um, yeah, it looks like there was a tear on uh, my adductor longus and magnus. Uh, pretty substantial tear, nice little collection of blood in there um, that looked to be resolving. Uh, a lot, most of the bruising and swelling has gone down. Um, but yeah, there was no, no tendon involvement. And due to like my symptoms that I could squat and deadlift, walk normally, play golf, and the fact that the bruising had resolved and there was no tendon involvement, basically conservative management you know, just physical activity modification and, and symptom management is, uh, is kind of the key here. So that's what I'm going to be doing. Um, how I felt after the meet, I was pretty bummed about it, to be honest. I, I had prepped for so long and training was going so well. And I, and I, in addition, I had made it so public, you know, like I'm going to this meet and that, I think that was cool. Like, I just like people being on the journey with me, but it just felt like a big letdown, you know, like somebody popped my balloon, let the air out of the, out of the whole experience. And so I was pretty bummed about it, frustrated that, uh, it didn't all come together. You know, I understand it's going to be like that, but I was really hoping, um, that this meet, you know, was my return to <laughs> return to glory. You know, that's, uh, that was what Tiger Woods come back in 2019. That's, uh, what Jim Nance said when he finally won another major championship. And I understand this is a major championship. It's just a local powerlifting meet, but I thought, man, if I could beat that total, that would be my return. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it just didn't work out that way. And so pretty bummed about it and frustrated. Uh, so that's, that's wearing off and I'm, I'm kind of in the rehab mindset now. I, I know that I'm going to get better. I know that I'm going to be back on the platform at some point. Uh, I just, you know, I'm more happy that I feel great now. I mean, I'm not having any problems sleeping anymore. I don't feel tired or dizzy or anything like that. So whatever junk I was carrying around is, is resolved and I feel feel much better. Uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll see what happens. And, and silver lining, now I get to share a bunch of rehab content with you. So this week, what I'm going to do on Friday, Black Friday, um, in addition to, again, some of our sales stuff, I'll be dropping the video, highlighting the rest of my prep for the meet, all the content I have on that, kind of summarizing how that all went leading into the meet. 
And then um, next week, we'll start with the rehab content. We'll show you guys my workouts, my consultation with Dr. Miles, and then kind of the plan going forward. Um, I'm hoping, you know, six to eight weeks, I'll be back, uh, hopefully squatting, you know, somewhere in the 300s, somewhere in there, and, and pulling about the same. And that'd be good progress, because I think uh, I'd like to be back to normal and considering a meet by the end of Q1 uh, 2022, maybe maybe competing some sometime in the late spring, early summer of 2022, if I can, if I get motivated and training is going well. So we'll see. Hopefully you enjoyed hearing some of that. I mean, not the most exciting stuff. I wish I could have told you, yeah, I went out and hit all my numbers and everything was great. And I got a, a sweet, sweet medal, but uh, didn't work out like that. So uh, in any case, I'll sh- I get to share with you guys the rehab process and uh, hopefully you guys find that useful as well. I think it's really nice, to, I'll say this, to have the great support system that I do with my friends and my colleagues here. I think that is uh, a privilege that obviously not everyone has. So that's been super useful being able to talk to folks, level-minded folks who kind of, who are really up on rehab and pain science and stuff. That's been useful. And then just friends, you know, because they, they empathize, they get it. And uh, all the support that you guys showed me via Instagram and my DMS and on Facebook and our Facebook group, that was all really, really awesome. I just, Wish, wish it would have gone better. So anyway, enough from me. Let's hop in to this week's podcast. Again, this is episode 159, part one of Dr. Baraki and I's question and answer session from Sacramento, California at Untamed Strength. All right. So thank you guys so much for coming to the Sacramento uh, edition of the Barbell Medicine Seminar here at Untamed Strength. Thank you. No one clapped. Okay. Um, sometimes there's applause. Sometimes there's not. You just hit and miss. We'll edit that out. Yeah, no, I will. Yeah, when you say we'll edit that out, right? Yeah, I'll edit that out. Sure. Uh, if you have to leave during the Q&A, uh, don't worry about it. Thank you. Understand. Thanks for coming. If your question is not answered, uh, it's because Leah doesn't like you. Uh, or we've answered it. Yeah, yeah, people believe that. Or we uh, have maybe answered it in some previous content. Um, we're still happy to answer it, so you can post it on our forum, on our Facebook group, or uh, probably the most active person on social media in the Barbell Medicine crew is Alan Thrall, and he loves DMs. He likes answering them <laughs> and engaging in them all day. So 10 out of 10 would recommend um, sending your DMs to Untamed Strength. He will, he'll, he'll answer them. He's also a doctor, so it's great. All right. Question number one. Any evidence... For eating the rainbow, i.e. any unique benefits of a range of colored fruit and vegetables, question mark, phytonutrients, red flag, question mark. I like the inclusion of the red flag. Because, like, how did you find that emoji, like, on, like, it's Microsoft so, Word? It's so hot right now. It is so hot, but I'm just, like, it's in, this is in your Google Docs. Yeah. So Google knows. That's impressive. Um, yeah, I, in general, I would want people to eat a wide variety of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes lean proteins, all that sort of stuff as part of a health-promoting dietary pattern. I I think when people ask this question, what they really mean is, in a given day or in a week, do I really need to have X amount of variation in my vegetable intake or fruit intake? And the answer to that is no. Um, You can have a highly repeatable diet. I think that as the seasons change and as different fruits and vegetables come into and go out of season, you know, altering them based on your dietary preferences and what's available to you is preferable. Um, but I'll, I'll end this, at least this first part, by saying I don't know that if you have a much higher variation of vegetable intake compared to a lower variation of vegetable intake, but the overall fiber intake and number of servings is the same, if there's a unique benefit there. 
And I certainly don't think that is, you know, accessible for a lot of people to, you know, eat a super wide range of vegetables and fruits because it's not even accessible for a lot of people to eat fresh fruits and vegetables, period. So um, as far as phytonutrients, are they a thing? Uh, yes, in fact, uh, <laughs> phytonutrients, you know, uh, fl- uh, flavonoids and uh, all these other different components of fruits and vegetables that seem to have unique health-promoting effects are, in fact, real. Um, and it's one of the reasons why we don't see the relationship between supplemental dietary fiber uh, and good health outcomes. Uh, we don't see the same sort of relationship uh, that we see with people who actually eat more fruits and vegetables, save for, like, the LDL or the lipid-lowering effect that we see with high amounts of supplemental dietary fiber. So when people uh, are having a problem eat, uh, meeting their sort of daily fiber goal and their first itch is to like reach for supplemental dietary fiber, I usually try to find solutions uh, or help try to find solutions to consume more fruits and vegetables because I think there's, there are unique health promoting effects there compared to consuming supplemental dietary fiber. If you have a, uh, want to lower your lipids, triglycerides much further, um, and you can use high amounts of supplemental dietary fiber to do so. Uh, that works, but as far as the other like health-promoting effects of fruits and vegetables, they do seem to be unique to consuming dietary fiber from them. Yeah, I agree that consuming a variety of fruits and vegetables varying colors when you can, to the extent you can, is in general a good recommendation. I did want to tackle this latter part of the question because it seems like they're asking phytonutrients with the red flag emoji. Is it like they're asking, is this something that should be a red flag for like quackery or something like that? And this is like definitely no. Phytonutrients are basically non-energy containing nutrients that are unique to certain plant sources, meaning they don't provide calories, but they are other plant compounds that do have biological effects in the body and have health impacting effects present primarily in plant foods. Like you mentioned, flavonoids, polyphenols are another one. These are some of the things that are present in uh, things like olive oil, uh, like dark chocolate, cruciferous vegetables, dark berries, things like that have plenty of these in particular. There's tons of foods that have them. That's just a few common examples. Some of them have been studied for you know, unique benefits of some of these compounds in the context of cardiovascular disease or like dementia risk and things like that. I don't think it's worth going way too far down the rabbit hole of worrying about it at that level, rather just recognizing that these things exist, they're real, they're not a red flag for a quack who's, who's talking about them, and you should consume a wide variety of them. But as it pertains to these sort of plant components, what is more of a red flag, and I think this is worth addressing, is if you hear people talk about things like quote-unquote anti-nutrients that are present in plant foods, or lectins, or phytates or other things like that that truly are real things that exist and they're present in plant foods and you will hear certain folks talk about these things in particular carnivore dieters they talk about these things as things that are present in plants that were effectively because plants are trying to not get eaten and so they're trying to poison animals so that they don't get eaten they basically use this to make an argument that vegetables are toxic. This is literally a thing that certain carnivore diet proponents will say, and that you should avoid all vegetables because they contain these sort of anti-nutrients, right? And while some of these compounds are a real thing, one of the most common issues that is a big red flag with these people who are in these diet circles is they tend to find some sort of a biological mechanism like this, be it a quote-unquote anti-nutrient kind of effect, 
or they may find some sort of a petri dish type mechanism and blow it way out of proportion, ignoring all the evidence for benefit in real world outcomes of people consuming lots of vegetables. Right? Same thing happens when they talk about polyunsaturated fatty acids. They say, you know, there's this one possible mechanism that a polyunsaturated fatty acid could contribute to inflammation and ignore all the evidence that they do not increase inflammation, they do not increase heart disease, they do not increase these things. And the same thing applies here. So I wanted to say, obviously, the phytonutrient thing, real thing, beneficial compounds, worth eating lots of vegetables. What is a red flag is this other side that you will come across if you read probably more than you should about nutrition on the internet. Yep. Mechanistic studies, clinical outcome studies. Yes. Much heavier weight. Uh, we, we put a lot more weight on studies that actually look at real human outcomes rather than potential Petri dish type of uh, mechanisms and yeah. things like that. Yeah, while interesting. Uh, Hypothesis not, generating, that's not, what we call those. Not interesting enough. All right. What is the most rewarding or fulfilling part of your teaching slash coaching work? And what is the hardest part? Well, I'll tell you the most rewarding part is arguing with strangers on the internet about their opinions. <laughs> For my money, I just tell you, you know. Never gets old. Never. Um, probably, probably two things that are, oh, I, I think they're, they're pretty disparate. So I really enjoy when professionals, either fitness or medical, but, but definitely medical professionals, reach out and say, hey, this has either changed my practice or changed how I'm talking to patients or changed my opinion on something that I was really kind of emboldened on. That's just, I mean, that, that's one of the reasons why this thing exists, you know, and, and I, I think because it, it's so special to us, just given our, our training, uh, to hear another medical provider be like, yeah, so you changed my mind. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> how though? Tell me how. Um, that's really, really powerful. Um, the other part is seeing somebody accomplish something they never thought they'd be able to do from a physical standpoint so that's just from coaching and you know when I initially started coaching people in person it'd be like a someone who who had lost a lot of weight and now can do a chin up or whatever and then now it'd be a post-op person who then benches over their body weight like the post shoulder repair or they previously had this very debilitating back pain and now they deadlift uh, some crazy amount or like Leah for example even when we first started she could barely lift the pink dumbbells right no offense to the pink dumbbells but they were barely getting lifted by Leah and she could only safety squat bar squat and then you know years later she's at IPF Worlds. are you kidding me like Man, that was cool. I still cool. You, not like you, you're not washed up. You're you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, the hard the hardest part for me is trying not to get bogged down in the stuff that doesn't matter, and that that tends to be the strangers that are trying to argue with you or waste your time on the internet. And because it's not a sense of wanting to be right, it's the sense of wanting to make sure that your message is clear and you know undiluted and not being compromised by people saying or writing certain things. And it's like, do you have to answer everyone? Obviously the answer is no. But at some point you feel like, well, I put this out there and these people are responding and I need to make sure that what I'm saying is clear. And it, it is difficult to kind of let that go and um, it doesn't necessarily bother me like on a personal level. It's just a time suck. You'd spend that time doing better stuff. Sure. Yeah. Also, I'm not great at editing videos and that just, it, that's a really hard thing for me to do, but I, we're working on it and putting out more uh, YouTube content is something we're really trying to push. So, all right. I will say that in part, Jordan stole my 
answer in that before this, my exact same answer was uh, as far as fulfillment, seeing somebody do something that they did not think they were going to be able to do. I would extend it beyond just physical things because obviously I do coach people in you know, lifting, strength training, performance, things like that, and see this all the time. Well, they'll start training, and then we get someplace, and they're like, man, I did not see myself getting this far when we started, did not see myself hitting this milestone, whatever the case is. That's cool. But I also spend a fair amount of my time teaching medicine in a hospital and teaching really complicated medicine to trainees, junior doctors, medical students, with some of the sickest patients in the hospital are internal medicine patients um, that have 12 different problems and all kinds of different organ failure things. And so it's really intimidating for a student to come in, right? And to have to like present their first patient to me or something like that. And then, you know, over the course of a rotation or more recently, I had an individual who I had as a student and then I had as a first year resident and then I had as a second year resident and I've been able to see this progression of where they started, kind of like a where, where we started and where we are now kind of thing. Um, and that is super fulfilling. And I can see this progression from med student, med students don't know anything, to next year is going to be a colleague, which is super cool, very rewarding because of how complicated some of the things that we have to wrap our minds around, how complicated some of the decisions are that we have to make life and death decisions with people. So coaching, getting people to, you know, their first milestone lift, two plate, three plate, four plate, whatever the case is, you know, lift that people get super psyched about. And then also seeing people accomplish things that, you know, they may have been super intimidated by or didn't think that they were going to get to this point of skill, independent decision making or ask, what do you think is going on? And then they're like, man, I've seen this before. I know how to walk through this and think about this. And, um, you know, they're able to like manage things independently. So I find that super fulfilling. All right. If you had to speculate, are most of the people with obesity in our modern food environment obesity sensitive and most that don't have obesity, obesity resistant? I mean, by definition, yeah. And I would say that, again, if we're using <laughs> by definition, uh, that most people, period, are obesity sensitive, just given the rates of obesity globally. Um, I think the reason that I wanted to include this question is to really hammer home the point that like, Obesity, just like every other disease state that we've talked about, high blood pressure, cholesterol issues, diabetes, whatever the case is, it is the emerging emergence, the result of an interaction between genes and environment. That is like the main paradigm of this kind of stuff, the interaction between genes and environment. Because we'll we will hear people say, why has obesity increased in prevalence so much in the past 50 years, 100 years, human genes have not changed that much in the past 50 years, 100 years. There's not been massive human evolution in the past century, right? It's because the environment has changed so dramatically, right? And the expression of those same genes that we've had in this new environment that is engineered <laughs> in a certain way to hit those centers in our brain that really get us going, crank up our appetite, buy more, consume more, et cetera, that interaction is what leads to the emergence of this phenomenon that we observe as obesity. Obesity is like the symptom of all of this, practically, right? Um, the underlying issues are this gene-environment uh, interaction. And so, like we made the case at the beginning of the weekend, some people are afforded a different hand from birth, right? The genes that they are dealt up front. And that might set them up between those genes, their upbringing, culture, environment coming up. That may set them up on a trajectory that is more susceptible to this modern food environment, and they may be more prone to developing obesity due to factors both within and outside of their control. 
and other individuals may be dealt a hand that renders them more resistant. This, these are the folks who you know who are super lean no matter what they eat, no matter what they do, right? The people that are praised by society for being, you know, paragons of virtue and self-control, even though it's probably just their genes in the context of the environment, that's just what happens to them, right? They couldn't develop obesity if they tried in some situations. <laughs> Right? And that's not because they're better people than anybody else, just the hand they were dealt in the current environment. And other people are in a different situation. Yeah. If our culture rewarded a different body composition, they would be. As it has in the past. That's right. You know, in the past, it used to reward, you know, larger bodies. Yeah. One of the thoughts, yeah, and if you were muscular, you were a criminal. So (laughs) it's like, well. Uh, One of the thoughts behind maybe some of the genetic components here and other recent changes is that body fatness, body composition was sort of. from an evolutionary standpoint, regulated based on this uh, scale between you didn't want to be so thin, so lean, so have so low a body fat that if you got sick, you'd be, you would die, right, or starve to death. So that sort of risk. And you didn't want to be so large, so slow that you'd become a predatory risk, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, without this predation risk, we've had this genetic drift towards more and more uh, and that's happened over longer than 50 to 100 years. That's been a long, long time coming. Um, you know, animals have not been like really attacking <laughs> humans in large numbers. Correct. Yes. Um, and now this modern food environment is basically, uh, you know, kind of pounced upon um, this genetic drift. So, yeah, that's there's that's, a lot of interesting hypotheses around that. <laughs> for I sure. Agreed. Okay. If you are a rehab slash medical professional who found the information in the pain lecture challenging and totally new, how do you grapple with the new information, rethink your practice, and move into a more evidence-based worldview and set of treatments? I just, I think you just ignore it. <laughs> Have you, uh, are you familiar with ostriches? I mean, you, just, you just bury your head. And, is that not what you were gonna say? No. I think that the fact that this question is being asked represents a substantial amount of intellectual maturity Uh, because the natural cognitive bias that we would have, the lizard brain, what it would want to do would be to ignore that and to say, what I'm doing works for my patients. What I do, I see it work every time and that's what gets me paid and so I'm gonna keep doing that. And these guys don't see my patients, right? They don't do what I do. I'm special, I'm gonna keep doing that. We have been in these arguments before, if you can't tell. <laughs> we have been in these discussions before. But again, this illustrates to me that this person is open to the possibility that they may not have it totally figured out. Kind of like how I said in the lecture, nobody has it totally figured out, myself included, and I'm the person giving the lecture. You guys are like, man, what a ripoff. I paid to be here and listen to somebody who said he doesn't have it all figured out, right? But that's kind of the point. That's where we are with our knowledge. There is always a substantial amount of uncertainty in clinical practice. Even in the stuff that I do every day, I have all kinds of hypothetical mechanisms of why did this patient's you know, hemoglobin go up or down? Or why, you know, was it because of what I did? Sure, I'd like to take credit for it. But I always have to consider, hmm, maybe it was just lab error or something like that. Maybe it was you know, totally irrelevant to what I did for this person. I have to consider that possibility. Consider the possibility that my diagnosis is incorrect. Consider that they may be getting better in spite of my treatment or just because time is passing not necessarily because of what I'm doing to them. Maybe the effects that I observe are not necessarily due to what I'm doing to the person, as much as I'd like to take credit for it and pat myself on the back, 
right? So this is respect for this kind of attitude. This is the same attitude I carry with, you know, even the stuff that I've been trained in and do every day and have done for, for several years now. So um, I think that's a good starting point. And I think being open to this stuff will lead you to, uh, to the light, so to speak here, as far as doing more reading, allowing your biases to be challenged, allowing all the stuff. I mean, you have to entertain the possibility that all the stuff you've been told before was incorrect or incomplete. And you have to be okay with that, right? Which can be a gut punch, right? Particularly if your salary depends on it, right? There's a quote about uh, the hardest thing to do is to change somebody's mind when their salary depends on not understanding it, something to that effect, right? Um, but I think we're starting from a good place, remaining curious, remaining open, really not you know, being too prideful to, to change your mind or recognize that you are wrong. Those are kind of like the big things that I would suggest. I am very, very, very loosely attached to just about everything that I presented to you guys this weekend, right? Open to the possibility that we're wrong. And the degree of attachment that I might have to a given claim is not based on my professional identity, who I am, what I do, but rather to the strength of the evidence underlying it, right? So like when I presented the lipid lecture, I'm more attached to that because of the strength of the evidence that supports it. Right? compared to some of the other things. Like I suspect that a fair amount of the stuff that Jordan mentioned in the programming lecture, if you asked him how attached are you to this hypothesis, he'd say, eh. Because there is not nearly as much evidence supporting some of that, that stuff in the programming realm as there is, for example, compared to the stuff that I presented in the lipid lecture. And that's just the way it is. That's just where we are right now. That's what should guide the, our confidence in our claims is the uh, amount of evidence we have to justify it, not how it makes us feel. Yep. I mean, I think most interesting thing that has happened with me changing my mind uh, on things relating to programming and nutrition is that then people are like, well, you're, you're just a flip-flopper, you know, or you were just faking it before, or you're faking it now, or it's a, some secondary gain type thing. And I'm like, it's fine to change your mind. It, I mean, encourage, I encourage it. If I, if I was still doing the same thing 10 years from now, man, I would really, really would have missed the boat, you know? But then some of these people are like, nope, still same, still the same, it's 20, last 20 years. I'm like, a lot of stuff has happened though. <laughs> you should maybe update your priors. All right, uh, let's see, in an ideal world, easy, safe, and cheap tests for physiological correlates to performance, assuming those exist. Could we stratify sports competition by physiology, i.e. lean body mass, VO2 max, height, et cetera, to make competition fair? Why are they asking me this? I figured this is a question you would nerd out more than me. I mean, you could, so you, if you ha were the president of a sports organization, could do whatever you want, right? Because they're currently just, you know, private entities. Um, as far as would it be a worthwhile endeavor, well, that just depends on why you think sports exist in the, for in the first place. Are they for commercial interests to flour flourish? Is it for the spirit of the game, right? Do you subscribe to the Olympic Charter that inclusion and participation are, you know, the primary factors in athletics? Like, I don't know. It depends how you view this stuff. So I don't know that you need to have competitions uh, and, or sports separated by body height, like you have a tall NBA league and a short NBA league, or you have like runners with high VO2 maxes versus low VO2 maxes, like do you have separate Olympics? Do you have like, you know, what's the SNL skit, like the all drug Olympics? <laughs> you know, like, I, so I really just think it depends on, on what, 
what the goal of sport is. I think right now, the way we ha- uh, have divisions in most sports, uh, there's usually a gender division, and there, and then there tends to be skill division, so either amateur and professional or multiple like subcategories of amateurs. Sometimes in physique sports, there's height division. I mean, you know, there's, things are just made, these are all made up. Right, and so you could you just be making up other divisions. Um, we're assuming that the a lot of these things make competition more fair, but then you have to define what fair means and and what are you prioritizing. Um, I don't know that I have a good answer for this. I will tell you if you are interested in this question and similar questions, there are two books I would recommend reading. One is called Sport in Society. It talks about the societal impact of sport. Uh, and then the impact of society on sport, uh, and then P, uh, sorry, uh, Edge by uh, Robert Pikey Jr. Both of those books explore t- this topic and similar topics pretty in depth, and I think you could get some interesting ideas uh, about that. As far as what I would do, uh, I would convene a panel of actual experts uh, <laughs> across many different fields and try to come up with something that uh, everybody agreed upon. Because anything I would come up with would have untoward knock-on effects that I couldn't possibly foresee because I am only an expert in a very small niche uh, uh, in, in the realm of athletics. What would you do? I would first say sports aren't fair. <laughs> Just period, Right. And then um, I would add a reading recommendation on top of what you said. A dystopian short story by the name of Harrison Bergeron. Has anybody here read this? Yes. Fascinating dystopian story. Basically, it was the most fair, equal society imaginable. People who were too smart would have things implanted in their ears that would buzz off noises at a given frequency. So people who were too smart could not think enough to demonstrate that. People who could jump too high would have weights attached to their ankles, so they could not jump as high. Everything was made exactly perfectly equal. It sounds f***ing horrible. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's fair, though. But it was fair. But it was fair. Yeah, sports aren't fair. They're never going to be fair. They should not be fair from this sort of a perspective, right? If you had perfectly act, uh, equally matched physiological parameters, are you trying to get this to the point where everybody just lifts the same amount of weight or swims just as fast? It's just a tie, first place to eighth, eighth place. The whole heat finishes at the exact same time. It's, it's what the, is the point It's the it's, it's the NASCAR uh, <laughs> approach. Like, you were using a stock car yeah. with a restrictor plate and then, you know, see who the best driver is. Yeah. But so this then, gets back to what Jordan was saying. What do you mean by fair and what is the point of sport, Right. There's going to be somebody who wins and somebody who doesn't. There is going to be, there must be some level of unfairness on some level, right? Unless we're going to start genetically editing everybody to have the same genes, the same upbringing, the same access to training, the same coaching, all this other stuff, right? That's super fair. Be a very uninteresting sport to watch. So what is the point of sport, right? Sports aren't fair. Deal with it. Yeah, or don't. Yeah. All right, that's a wrap on episode 159. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks to Dr. Baraki, Tom Capitelli, and Alan Thrall at Untamed Strength for uh, letting us use his gym, Tom Capitelli for running the AV stuff, and Dr. Baraki for entertaining 
or allowing me to uh, jut in with uh, with my commentary on this on this Q and A. Uh, before you go anywhere, leave us a five star rating and a review wherever you're getting this podcast from. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast. Consider sharing it with a friend. That would be useful so we can help keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. We'll see you guys next week for part two of the podcast and an update on my training rehab. Thanks again. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody in the States. Have a great week. MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.